Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 13 this morning as we continue through our exposition of God's Word from the book of Acts. We'll begin reading in verse 13 this morning, going to the end of the chapter. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning him with his hand, said, Men of Israel, you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out. For about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. As John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, those among you who fear God to us have been sent the message of this salvation for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilling them by condemning him. And though they found him not guilty, worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in the tomb. But God raised him from the dead. For many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you good news, what God promised to their fathers. This he has fulfilled to us, the children, by raising Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for that fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he spoke in this way, I'll give you the holy and sure blessing of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that though this Through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. 
But the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy, began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourself unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And the Gentiles heard this. They began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spread throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated. Well, this Sunday, as you know well now that this Sunday we celebrate Palm Sunday, that triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem with the crowds and the waving of palm branches and the cloaks being placed before the Lord and that cry of Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this begins what we know as the Passion Week where the Lord is on his way to the cross and to the grave and ultimately to his resurrection on Easter Sunday. But that week that we are now in is really a microcosm of the entirety of the the Lord's life. On the one hand, you had the great throng of followers, those that went out to, to hear him and see him. But you also had those that opposed him and rejected him at every step. And you see that contrast heightened and the lines even blurred in that final week. The great crowds crying out praise and yet days later the same crowds crying out to crucify him. And so you have this acceptance as well as this rejection. You have salvation as well as condemnation. It is the pattern of our Lord's ministry and indeed of the entirety of his life and especially of his last week. And in fact, it's the same pattern that we see throughout the whole of Scripture. That God's work of salvation, his redemption is given and yet time and time again, people reject it. And not only reject it, but willfully and woefully reject it. So much so that as Jesus enters Jerusalem, he weeps. He weeps over it, saying in tears, if you had only known on this day the thing that would make for peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The tears of our Savior, weeping over hardened and stubborn hearts that know not the way of peace, but rather are trapped in their own misery, trying to find their own way when the way is made so apparent, the way is indeed in front of them. It is in the person and work of Christ himself. It is that good news of salvation that goes out to the very ends of the earth. It is the message of 
deliverance for all who believe. And many, by the grace of God, as we see in this passage, as we see in our own experience, do believe and receive that gift of salvation. But at the same time, many still do not because of the hardness of our hearts. That is what Paul experiences along with Barnabas again and again as he is sent out by the church, by this primarily Gentile church in Antioch. He goes on his first missionary journey, which is what we are reading about. Paul goes, and this is where those little maps in the back of your Bible are so very helpful. He goes from Antioch to Cyprus to Perga, now to another Antioch in Pisidia, an area of West Galatia. And there they go to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And they are given an opportunity to speak, quote unquote, a word of encouragement. And that word of encouragement that Paul wants to give is that God has given us salvation. And it comes in the form of his son, our savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the same message It is indeed the greatest word of encouragement that still goes forth this day in this place into the rest of the known world. That message of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is that message that will be indeed received or rejected. And we'll see that in three points this morning. The preaching, the payoff, and then the proof. First, the the preaching. As we begin this section in verse 13, we see that as this first missionary journey commences, they have one of their first challenges, not from the outside, there was many of those, but from within. As they go to Perga, we read this, Luke just tells us that John, who we know is John Mark, left them and returned to Jerusalem. John Mark, if you remember, was a part of the family. His mother was the one that no doubt owned the large gathering place that was often used in the life of Christ as well as in the life of the apostles, that room that we know as the upper room. And therefore, John Mark would have been very familiar with the the teaching and the work of Christ as well as the rest of the apostles, so much so that he is the author of the gospel of Mark. And here he accompanies Paul and Barnabas on this first missionary journey, but then we read that he leaves. Luke does not tell us why. It could have been a physical reason, could have been emotional, could have been mental, could have been spiritual. All of those things, as you know, affect us. Just a little plug for you to come back tonight as we return to Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 as we look at this topic of despair and depression and its biblical remedies. We see there in that psalm that all of those things can affect us, and they indeed do. And so that could have been true for John Mark, or perhaps it was a crisis of faith. We really do not know the reason But suffice it to say that Paul does not agree with the reason that John Mark left. 
You see, as you know already from what you've read from Paul's writings, as well as what we've already seen in the book of Acts, that Paul was a very zealous man. He was zealous before his conversion in the persecution of the church, and then through his radical conversion, the Lord uses that misguided zeal and aims it appropriately for the work of the gospel and the work of the church and for the kingdom. So much so that Paul could say that I work harder than any of them. Speaking of the other apostles, though not I, but the grace of God that is within me. In other words, Paul was a bit of an intensive dude. He was 110% all the time. And so anybody that was not as gung-ho as he, he did not have time for that. And so we see this so much that in chapter 15, as we will get to it in a few short weeks, this causes a rift between Paul and Barnabas because Barnabas wants John Mark to to come back and, and to join them on the missionary journey. But Paul does not want him. Sees him perhaps as a, a traitor, one that has turned his back. And I think, as we'll see then, Paul was wrong in that. Because what is true of Paul is true of all of us. Our greatest strength can also be our greatest weakness. But we will leave it at that, but just to simply note that John Mark leaves. And so the group is down one man, but they continue on as they go almost 100 miles north to another Antioch in the region of Galatia. And there we hear that they go and head to the synagogue, which was usually the first stop in a new town. To those that were familiar with the Old Testament Scripture, to give them the, the, the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, how Christ fulfills all of the Old Testament, all of the, the covenant that God has made with his people, with the Jews, and has now extended that to the Gentiles. In fact, we see some of that in Paul's preaching, don't we? We see him referring to the Old Testament, not only the history, but the actual Scriptures, And it says that as they come into this synagogue, they were asked to give a word of encouragement. Perhaps the synagogue knew that these men were from Jerusalem, knew that they were studied and learned man, and that they could give a message that would be of encouragement to this synagogue that was way out in Galatia. And Paul indeed takes that opportunity. And that moment... And he does stand up to speak and give a word of encouragement. It is interesting here, as we've noted before, that it's Paul, not Barnabas, that speaks. Even though Barnabas was probably older, probably had more experience, was probably converted much before the Apostle Paul, Barnabas yields to the one that was perhaps more gifted. He aided Paul. In his journeys, he was willing to play second fiddle. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. In fact, it's, it's quite beautiful to see. It shows the humility of Barnabas as we've talked about before. But it also demonstrates that it takes all of us. You don't have to stand here to have a, a vital place in the life of the church, in the body of Christ. 
You don't have to be a pastor just to, to be able to minister to others. In fact, I would say to you, as lay people, you have opportunities that myself and Pastor Myers never have opportunities to. You get to talk to people that would never talk to us and speak forth the word of life. And so don't think because you don't have that title reverend or pastor that you can't minister in a a tremendous way. That is not true at all. Barnabas used his gifts and used them effectively. Everything that Paul was able to do was because Barnabas helped him, because Barnabas aided him in that task. And the same is true for us. This is not Joel's church. This isn't Danny's church. Don't ever call it that, please. This is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's his body. And we are to minister as God has called us to do so. And Paul stands up here to to preach And that can't be overlooked. We are people of the word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. The Westminster Confession of Faith says that God effectually calls and applies his salvation through his word and spirit. Ken Wingate recently at our men's retreat made a profound point. He said, we as Christians need to be readers and hearers not primarily watchers and seers. Meaning, we are to live by what we hear and not by what we see. And that is bared out by Scripture, isn't it? Because faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And I think what he was saying with that is the problem with our eyes is that they are always trapped in time. You're always trapped in this moment. You, you can't look into the past. You, you can't look into the future. You only have here and now, but our ears are not limited in that way. They can hear the word of God. They can hear the truth of God, that truth that is as old as time, that is as old as God himself, which is from all eternity. And that truth is much more sure than our today. And it's much more reliable than our tomorrow. And so we need to be people that hear and people that listen. Jesus said, blessed are the ears that hear. And that is why we put a preeminence on preaching and teaching. If you want to know what Smyrna Presbyterian Church is about, we are primarily a a preaching and teaching church. That isn't a novel idea. That isn't something that we came up with. No, Jesus was a preacher. The apostles were preachers. That's what we see in this passage is that Paul preaches. And he gives a sermon. And you notice a a pattern here in this sermon. We won't be able to analyze all of it. But we see that Paul clearly lays out that God has shown forth salvation And again and again, man has rejected it. You see that in verses 17 through 19 as he begins that the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made them great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And he uplifted them and he led them out. You hear what Paul is saying, that God chose them. He chose them. He initiated it. 
He was the one that made them great. He was the one that delivered them from Egypt. It was a God-ordained salvation and a miraculous one at that. But how did the people respond? Well, they responded with a lot of grumbling and complaining. Not with praise. Not with gratitude. Not with thankfulness, as you would think, being delivered from, from slavery, from an evil taskmaster. No, they grumbled and complained. If you've read through the book of the Bibles and, and have made your way through the book of Numbers, many people have said that it's called Numbers because God has numbered his people and the people have numbered their complaints against God. I call it Israel's teenage years. If you have teenagers, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Notice what it says in verse 18. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness like bratty children, like ornery teenagers. And yet despite their unbelief, despite their grumbling and complaining, did God reject them? No, he was faithful. It says in verse 19, he led them into the promised land, a a land of their own, defeating kings and nations before them. But notice as he goes on, that wasn't enough. For verse 21, they asked for a king. They rejected God as their king. And God gave them their heart's request. It says that he gave them Saul for 40 years, who indeed was a miserable king. It started bad and it ended even worse. You could say it ended even worser. I know worser is not a word, but it's worse than worse. That was Paul or Saul's kingship. It was a, a miserable one. And yet the people got exactly what they asked for, didn't they? It's what they wanted. And God says, here you go. Well, you get Saul. Good luck with that. Which demonstrates we should praise God that he doesn't give us all that we ask for. Praise God for unanswered prayer. And despite them rejecting the Lord as the king, did the Lord reject them? Did God give up on them? No, once again, he was faithful. He, he gave another king, a king that they did not deserve, a king after God's own heart, that of David. But we know from that story as well that they rejected David, going after his younger, more handsome, long-haired, womanizing son, Absalom. David is displaced from his own throne. And so the message is clear. God has given wonderful gifts again and again, and yet people have treated them with hostility and contempt. He has given them that which is valuable, but they have been cast aside. It'd be like a a child, not to say that this has ever happened in our home, a child that is sitting in the middle of the floor on Christmas morning or on a birthday with all these beautiful toys around them, but crying. Why? Because they did not get the one toy that they really, really wanted. So too was Israel. So what would happen when God gave them that which was most precious? Well, it'd be much of the same, wouldn't it? If not worse, it says in verse 23, of this man that is David's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior Jesus, as he promised. 
He even sent John the Baptist before them to prepare the way. A message of repentance. A message to say, don't miss this. Don't miss what is taking place. John saying, this is the one in whom's whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. And yet, what do we read? Did they get it? No. They, by and large, missed it. It says in verse 27, those who lived in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him or understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. This all should remind you of a parable that Jesus once spoke of a landlord who rented out his land to tenants and sent his servants to collect on his land. And it says that the tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time. And the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. You see the hard-heartedness, the stubbornness, the wickedness is overwhelming. It reminds me of that hymn, what more can he say than to you he has said? What more could he do than to what you he has already done? Every turn, God has been faithful. And yet every turn, man has responded not with faith, but faithlessness. And yet what is amazing, what we celebrate this week is that even though man has sinned greatly, that in the midst of mankind's greatest sin, the greatest rejection, which was the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, that becomes the greatest means of salvation for this earth. There is no place that we see our depravity greater and also our need for salvation than that, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet that is what we find. And that is where we find it. And that indeed is the total message of Paul's sermon. Look at verse 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent this message of salvation. Then you go down in verse 30, talking about how after being crucified, God raised him from the dead, and he appeared to those who had come with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are witnesses to this people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. Do you hear what Paul wants to say to those people on that Sunday that this Son of God has brought about the salvation that we long for, that we need. This is the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. It, in fact, is the entirety, the focus of Paul's sermon. It's all of Israel's history. It's all about Christ. The whole of Scripture is about Christ. And it leads to this moment, which we see with the second point, the the payoff. You, You get his application, and you must not miss it. He says in verse 38, Therefore, let it be known to you 
brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying all of history, all of revelation from Abraham and Moses and Exodus and the promised land and David, the life and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ leads to this very moment that the forgiveness of sins can be proclaimed to you. Paul says, don't miss it, you people of Antioch in nowhere Pisidia. We come in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ with all the history of God's revelation and of his redemption. And all of it leads to this very moment for you to hear this message that through this man and this man alone, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. It's for all of this that that message of the forgiveness of sins may go out and be offered through the preaching and through the Spirit's of God. And through the power of that same spirit, through the preaching of that same word, that message is proclaimed to you, the people of Smyrna, Georgia, that all of history leads to this moment in time for you to hear from my lips to your ears the message of forgiveness of sins that is offered through the Lord Jesus Christ. And what a Truly special blessing that is. And I know what you are thinking. You might be tempted to say, yeah, yeah, yeah. I have heard that before. I'll probably hear it again next week. It matters not. Let me say you, you, you're dead wrong. Each and every Lord's day that you are able to hear of the forgiveness of your sins that is offered through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is not only a good day, that is a great day. That is the best of days. And it even supersedes the last time you heard it. Why? Because you are that much more of a sinner. Your record of law-breaking only grew this week. Your debt only increased to a holy God. It is like the, the national debt. I don't know if you've ever seen one of those trackers that, that track the, the national debt. Probably don't want to. It's quite depressing. Um, but the numbers are spinning so fast that you can barely even see them. Your sins are like that, but are even greater. And the fact that you are here this morning, the fact that you can hear this message, that God is so gracious and so good that he has not consumed you in his wrath, consumed you in your sins, that he has allowed you to, to hear this message, not the message of condemnation, don't get me wrong. It's the message of reconciliation. It's the message of forgiveness of sins in Christ Jesus. I tell you, that is not just a good day, that is a glorious day. That we are given the forgiveness of sins. But it, Paul doesn't even stop there. As great as that is, he goes on to say in verse 39, and by him, everyone who believes is freed. He is made free. It is the message of freedom, that through the forgiveness of sins, everyone who believes in him is freed. 
And you might see in your footnotes that it could also be translated justified. If you were with us this morning in Sunday school, you know what that means. And if you weren't with us, then why weren't you with us? You're missing a lot of fun. As we go through the Westminster Confession of Faith, I promise you it's far better than getting a little extra sleep. You are freed. You are justified. You are made right. Again, we fail to recognize how glorious that is. If the message went out today to all Ukrainians that the Russians had been defeated, that they are retreating, that warfare has ended, that they have their independence, they have their freedom once again, how happy do you think they would be? They'd be dancing and celebrating in the streets. Every Ukrainian would be overwhelmed with tears. And so would we, and we don't even live there. We would rejoice with them. And then I tell you that even if that would happen, that freedom pales, pales in comparison to the freedom that we have. Because that freedom is temporary. This freedom is eternal. We are made right with God, a holy God. We are made right not only now, not only tomorrow, but for all of eternity. As Galatians 5 once says, if God has made you free, then you are free indeed for freedom. Jesus Christ has set us free. We're free from the penalty of sin. We're free from the penalty of death. Just like Christ, as, as Paul wants to show forth that Christ no longer is dead, that he did not see corruption, so too we will not see corruption. Yes, our bodies will see corruption, but we ultimately will live with the Lord, and then one day our bodies will be risen, just like our Lord's. What a message that is, that God is not against me, but he is for me. And we no longer have the wrath of God, but we have his favor. How much favor? Just as much favor as the son has favor. The one in which the father said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Do you not understand that that is the answer for the world? That is what the world longs for. And yet they run hither and thither everywhere to find it and seek it and never have it because this world cannot provide it for them. It only comes in Christ and Christ alone. There's nothing better. There is nothing greater. There's no greater message that can fall upon your ears and hopefully upon your hearts than this. It's the message that all of us needs to hear again and again, and Jesus is pleased to give it to us this day. What a message, what a, what a savior. And yet, what do we see? We, we see the proof, we see the proof of his sermon. As glorious as that message was, coming from the lips of Paul through the Holy Spirit, Paul knew that not everyone would believe. In fact, he knew that there would be scoffers. That's why he says in verse 40, beware. Lest there be those that is said of the prophets would come about. Look, you scoffers. Be astounded. How did Paul know that there was going to be those that would reject and scoff? 
He didn't know these people. He just had arrived into town. Well, it's not so much that he knew these people, but he knew all of mankind. That that's how man has responded since the beginning of time, since the time of, of Adam. That was the Apostle Paul's response for so many years. He missed it. He was blind to it. He was opposed to it until God made him alive. But yet he says to them at Antioch and us today, but don't you miss it. Don't you be ignorant. God is doing a work right here and right now, as it says, a work that you will not believe even if it one told you it true. And so do not miss it. Do not scoff. Believe and trust. And we see in the verses that many did believe, so much so that it says that the next Sabbath day, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. What an awesome reality. It's what we pray for here in this city. But sadly, many did not believe. It says that many scoffed and tried to revile Paul and Barnabas and even stir up persecution. You see that at the end of the, the chapter. And it really shows what Charles Spurgeon once said that the same sun, S-U-N, which melts wax, hardens clay. On the same gospel, which melts some persons to repentance, hardens others in their sin. And that is true today, even in the preaching of this word. And so I call out to some of you that need to believe in this message for the very first time. Perhaps you've been flirting with it, but yet you have not made that full commitment to Christ. You've put your toes in, but you have yet to dive in. Today is that day. And what a, a joy it would be to celebrate with you here this day, to, to have you fully realize the forgiveness of sins, the life everlasting that is found in Christ and Christ alone. Others of you are saved. You do believe, but you need to hear again this message of the forgiveness of sins, that you are forgiven in Christ. Not just some, not just a bit, not just 99%. You're forgiven fully. And today, you need to believe it. You need to trust it. You perhaps even need to forgive yourself. You need to see yourself as God sees you, as his son, and that you are now his son, that you are his daughter, that you are fully pleasing in his sight. And so remove that doubt. Remove that guilt. Remove that wondering or that questioning because if you are in Christ, that is not of God. Understand who you are in the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, God will not give this message forever. He will not contend forever. For we read even at the end of that parable that I told you about, the parable of the tenants, it talks about Jesus saying and asking the crowd, what should happen to these tenants? And the crowd, the crowd rightfully says, well, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end. And he will rent the vineyard to another who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. It's one of those moments that Jesus can go, you got it. You know, 
And in fact, he says, therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. See, that's what we see in this message. Don't we see that in this passage that Paul and Barnabas see the rejection of the gospel by the Jews. They're turning away from it and they see it now as the opening of the door to go to the Gentiles. Exactly what Jesus said in that parable. And so let us never take this message for granted. Let us never put it off for another time. We first must apply it to us. Again, we need to be amazed and marvel at it that we would be included in such a gift, that we'd be included in the family of God. And second, if this indeed is so precious and valuable to us, what do we do with it? Well, we are to not keep it to ourselves, are we? We're to spread it far, far beyond to Smyrna and the surrounding areas, to the ends of the earth. Jesus says you're the light of the world. You cannot keep that light hidden. You cannot hide it. We're not to hide it under a bushel as that children's song talks about. Rather, we're to be a city set on a hill for all to see. And you might say, but what if they reject it? Well, this passage should be an encouragement to us. They probably will. They might. That's what's been taking place ever since the beginning of time. And that shouldn't discourage us. We're not in charge of the results. We're charged to be faithful. We need to be responsible with that message, that precious gift has been given to us. And so are we. Are we individually? Are we as a church? We are the ambassadors of Christ, Paul says. God is making his appeal through us. Therefore, we implore you on the behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Indeed, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday amidst the shouting crowds, knowing that those very crowds that shouted praise and waved their palm branches would be the same ones that would be hurling curses and playing a part in his crucifixion. And yet, what does Christ do? Does he turn around and go in the opposite direction? No, he carries on. The humble and lowly king came to save you and me. That message of the forgiveness of sins is offered in Christ, in Christ alone. Indeed, what a message. What a Savior. Join me in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this preaching of the gospel through the lips of the Apostle Paul. It shows that all of your history, all of your revelation leads to this very moment. That through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to us. And we need not miss it. We ought not miss it. But we ought to receive it every time it is given to us. For we so desperately need it. We need it more than the air that we breathe or the food that we will later eat. We need you, O oh Lord, for it is in you that we live and move and have our being. And so, Lord, it's 
morning, would our hearts be full? Be full of faith, Lord, for those that would not believe before this moment, would they believe in this moment, in Christ, in Christ alone? But for those that have believed, would we believe once again in newness, in the fresh preaching of this gospel, the message that we are made fully right with you and have the forgiveness of sins. And Lord, would that message now be upon our lips this week as we think about the cost, the death, as well as the resurrection. And would we go forth, Lord, as those ambassadors here in Smyrna and Marietta and Mableton and Austell and Atlanta and far beyond, oh Lord, as far as you would send us, would we go forth with the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, the message not of condemnation but reconciliation and forgiveness of sins that is offered in you. We praise you for it. In Christ's name, amen.